You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Retrice with the Religica Theo Lab in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. And today we're speaking with Dr. Audrey Hudgens, who's an associate clinical professor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Seattle University. After retirement from the U.S. Army as a strategic intelligence officer, Dr. Hudgens began a second career teaching for the Matteo Ricci Institute in the political science department and in international studies programs. Dr. Hudgens' teaching interests include migration, leadership, and national security. Classes she teaches include understanding leadership, global poverty and migration, U.S.-Mexico border contemporary perspectives, and a national security seminar, to name a few. As I understand, Dr. Hudgens, you're currently working on a significant project on the labor movement right now with the Jesuit University in Avero, Puebla. Could you tell the listener more about that? Carol, thanks for having me, Michael. Yes, the research project is pretty exciting. It's referred to as Plataforma Waya, and it's a collaboration between Seattle University, Universidad Iberoamericana Puebla, otherwise known as Ibero Puebla, the Jesuit University in Puebla, Mexico. And both of us are partnering with the social apostolate of the Jesuits referred to as Radio Waya Cocotla, or Radio Waya. The focus of that investigation is the experience of H-2A migrant workers who travel between Veracruz State in Mexico and uh, Wenatchee Valley here in Washington State. The research question we're focused on is what is the experience of H-2A labor migration or what are the effects of H-2A labor migration on individuals, families, and communities? I know today we want to draw on your expertise to talk about national security and human security and the values essential to our future. But before we do that, could you just say more about why this area? What intrigues you most about areas of migration and some of the essential concerns of your research question as you've identified them? Migration is a complex issue, and it's one that is a natural process that has been around since the beginning of time. And the challenge is, is with the development of the conception of national sovereignty, we have this reality today where borders are very sacrosanct, if you will. And so there's an effort, particularly by developed nations in the global north, to prevent that normal and natural human process of migration. And so it's important for me to bring together the interests that I developed and expertise that I developed as a strategic intelligence officer, along with my academic research, to try to focus in on this particular problem. Well, this brings us to this question of national sovereignty already. I'm not an expert in it. You are, and I'm just fascinated by this, as I know the listeners are. There seems to be in Western culture this fundamental premise, I should say, of how nations interact. It goes something like this. Don't invade your neighbor or some such. Maybe Elliot was right. That good fences make good good neighbors. But either way, can you help us to understand at a time when nation states seem more brittle or at least healthy democracies like the United States seem less stable, help us to understand what counts for national security? Where does it come from? And what does it mean when we say or see a challenge, for instance, where Russia is violating the sovereignty of the Ukraine? right now, and challenging uh, international law, for instance. Let's begin there. What's national sovereignty? How can we understand this today? 
Well, we have to go back to 1648 and the Treaty of Westphalia that offered us key principles that sort of govern our experience today. The first one would be the right to national self-determination, a precedent for ending wars through diplomacy rather than conflict, peaceful coexistence among sovereign states. And those were normative principles established by the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 that govern how we interact with other nation states today. This idea of a balance of power among sovereign states and accepting a principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of other sovereign states. So 1648 is a super long time ago, right? But in our in our present day, we see that reflected in the UN Charter, which is being challenged, as you referred to, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so the UN Charter in Article 2.4 says that UN member states will refrain from the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. We can see that reflected in what I just discussed regarding the Treaty of Westphalia. But then there's this question that arises. Putin is justifying his use of force under Article 51 of the UN Charter. And what's that article say? That says that nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations. The challenge here is that Ukraine didn't commit or threaten to commit an armed attack against Russia. And so even if Russia could show that Ukraine had committed or planned to commit attacks on Russians, for example, the Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, which are at presently in conflict, Article 51 wouldn't permit an action in collective self-defense. And that's because Donetsk and Luhansk are not UN member states. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this challenge. What happens when one sovereign state says, okay, we're going to take Luhansk and Donetsk and make it our own, and now that's our territory? Right. And so that's sort of where the challenge is. Russia is saying that Donetsk and Luhansk are their own states, but they have not been declared so by Mm. international law. And so because they're not independent per se, it's just Russia's opinion of this, it creates this challenge and a tension between Article 2 and Article 51. How do those challenges get resolved? I mean, on the one hand, you have sovereignty and a state has, yes, this means by which it can exist and defend its territory. On the other hand, you have this other article, which seems to be in contradistinction to it. If the listener's following this, when you have two different countries laying claim to the same territory, whether it's seen as legitimate or otherwise, someone's got to be the arbiter for that. If the international community doesn't recognize that in this case, what do we make of sovereignty? There's something kind of porous about it, maybe more than we're comfortable with, do you think? Yes. I think the challenge is is that this UN Charter is offering us a framework to think about these interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's often been, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine has demonstrated, a challenge between these two principles. And so individual and collective self-defense is something that is important to recognize. And so that has created a situation in which many other states have come to Ukraine's aid. Mm -hmm. But you notice that there hasn't been the commitment of military force. Mm -hmm. So we have a a tension between this expectation that there is, uh, we're refraining from the use of force, yet we have this obligation, if you will, or a right to 
individual or collective self-defense. And that's the tension that we're seeing here with regard to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia is saying that that invasion, particularly with regard to the two regions that we've already mentioned, is an act of self-defense to protect itself or create a buffer between itself and the West. That's been one way in which the invasion has been justified or articulated. The challenge that the West faces in looking at this problem is that they understand that that the sovereignty of Ukraine has been violated, yet taking steps to apply instruments of national power like military force boots on the ground ups the ante in a way that that stresses the charter itself. And so that situation, so what we see happening in Ukraine is one in which many states have rushed Ukraine's aid, but that aid has been limited to military equipment, money, other ways in which they might support Ukraine in a defense of its own sovereignty. It has not reached the point where it would go further than that, in large part because of the challenge that the Charter presents ourselves, because of the tensions that are inherent. This must be really complicated for anyone doing national strategic intelligence, as you've done, because there's a lot of unknown in that. And it helps me to understand why this is whole discourse, just in this example alone around the nuclear option or preemptive nuclear deterrence strategy, all this language of what do we do next? In a sense of where are the limits? Where are the limits in the midst of national security? Could I offer sort of an analogy? Please. I'm not a sports person, but, you know, football teams work well in this sense. So we have this idea of nation states, just like football teams need good offense and good defense, right? Yeah. So Putin, back to the Ukraine example, feels threatened and invades Ukraine to create a buffer zone. Yeah. But there's other examples. The U.S. invades Afghanistan and Iraq to address various threats that it feels threatened by. The U.N. Charter places those limits, uh, places limits on defensive and protective measures. But it also doesn't, the tension that I've described before, doesn't expressly or entirely prohibit them. Now, all manner of ideas have been sort of created to address the gap Mm -hmm. and the challenge presented, particularly in the case of failed or failing states. So a question to ask ourselves would be, how do you define self-defense? Yeah. Um, And one thing that has been advanced is the idea of preemptive self-defense. Okay. This was a strategy that was very apparent in the wake of the attacks on 9-11. And so we began a series of wars of choice in the interest of our self-defense. And the, the terminology that was used was preemptive self-defense. And so we have examples of drone strikes Mm -hmm. um, where we're literally flying over sovereign territory of other nations. The Osama bin Laden raid in in Pakistan, Mm -hmm. we violated Pakistan's sovereignty Mm -hmm. in order to address this threat that we faced. The invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan that I've mentioned before, and certainly Ukraine would fall into this. Mm -hmm. But there's another idea that I think is useful to think about in this context with regard to offense, and that is particularly involving cases of failed or failing states. We have to address the moral challenges that that are presented by failing or failed states. What are a couple of those? So in 2002, primarily Canada advanced a doctrine called the responsibility to protect, and sometimes referred to as R2P. So this idea is that sovereignty is responsibility. Mm. And so we have to accept, or this doctrine asks us to accept the idea that 
sovereign nations have a responsibility Mm -hmm. to protect those that may be challenged by issues of sovereignty, particularly internal to the state. Mm -hmm. And so it implies a responsibility to protect the people. That is the responsibility of sovereign states to protect its own people. But what do you do when there's a situation in which a population is suffering serious harm, perhaps because of a war or insurgency or other kind of state failure? And if the state is unable or unwilling to address those, does the principle of non-intervention continue to apply? It might have to yield to the idea of an international responsibility to address the moral challenge that is presented. And so this right of humanitarian intervention is one that we've seen in Somalia, in Bosnia, in Kosovo. Maybe you could argue Haiti, but interestingly, not Rwanda. Well, let me ask you this first, though, so I understand this. I mean, this is so important. This right of humanitarian intervention, if we have this kind of greater moral responsibility, it applies to our own sovereignty, as you identified, but it also can apply to the to the people in other sovereign states, right? So it crosses sovereignties. So what happens if I'm in the U.S. and I've leveled a drone strike in another area where that sovereign state has proven to be pretty negligible in terms of its attitude towards its population? And so now that drone is doing damage in an area that's already damaged. And I've kind of mitigated my moral responsibility in terms of thinking about those other human beings on the other side of the sovereign line. What does this do to my responsibility, yes, to morality, but also to the UN Charter on sovereignty itself? Yeah, well, all of these situations that both you and I have brought up are, at its core, violations of sovereignty, yes? And so I think that's the tension that's present in the UN Charter that we haven't begun to resolve. In my view, there is this gap that has developed between this desire to refrain from the use of force that comes from the Treaty of Westphalia is embedded in the UN Charter, and this idea of how we go about not only protecting ourselves, the right of self-defense, but also the responsibility or the right of humanitarian invention when there are challenges that are faced by other sovereign states. So You mentioned Rwanda, for instance. And in that period of time, the U.S., you know, if you remember that period of time, the U.S. was really challenged by what was happening there, yeah. but did nothing. Mm-hmm. And in part, that was due to its, you know, the time period. It was right after Somalia, where we had gone into a failed state to try to stop what mm-hmm. was happening there. And it was a terrible, terrible mm-hmm. failure. And so we were very hesitant to exercise our power in that way. What was going on there? In Somalia, it was essentially a failed state, and many people, there was a giant humanitarian crisis that was as a result of this particular challenge with its government or absence of government. And so the effort to go in there and stabilize that governing situation and to be able to feed people because there was a Mm -hmm. tremendous famine happening and a number of U.S. forces were killed in the process. Mm -hmm. And so that made us hesitant to utilize force. And so when the genocide in Rwanda presented itself, the U.S. was really challenged to think about using its military instrument of power Mm -hmm. to be able to address that situation. And I think since then, that is in part why we've seen the development of this idea of the responsibility to protect doctrine that gives us an opportunity to think more deeply about when is it okay to violate sovereignty, even though the UN Charter says 
this is something that we shouldn't do. There are some situations that are of such moral imperative or humanitarian urgency that we can't not act. And arguably, the United States and its role as a a leading developed nation in the world has a responsibility to advance humanitarian values and do so with other like-minded individuals. The challenge is, is where do you draw the line about when that happens? Because arguably, in Iraq, there was a, air quotes, coalition of the willing Mm -hmm. that went in and tried to right that situation. But there's a lot of critics that would say that that was a bad war. Yeah. So we've talked about national sovereignty, and you've shown that there's some complications there. In terms of the defense of one's national interest or statehood, how do states operate in their own best interest? What are the means by which that takes place? Before we have a conversation, let's say, about the moral responsibility that might call into question how states act. Sure. Well, I think Westphalia sort of sets up this idea that national sovereignty is completely central and that everything that a state does has to be oriented on protecting its national sovereignty or advancing its own national interests. And so that field is typically referred to as national security. What is it that we need to do in order to advance our core interests in the world. And those are typically defined as three. The first is homeland security, just the physical protection of the homeland. Second, economic prosperity. How do we advance the economic interests of the nation? And then thirdly, the promotion of values. And so these three tenets, homeland security, economic prosperity, and promotion and values, if you think about any action that the United States is taking in the world, you could use this framework to sort of think about, okay, what what are these three interests, and, and often there's more than one interest at play, that is making us take the action that we're taking in the context of, of foreign policy. That's really helpful. Is there, a, in terms of interests of foreign policy, and how does that happen in terms of the balance of power diplomatically? How is that maintained? Awesome, because what you've just named is one of what's referred to as the instruments of power, okay. and that is diplomacy. And so there's sort of two acronyms that get thrown around a lot that help us think about how we advance those three interests that I've just described. And the first one is called DIME. Everyone needs a nice acronym to throw around at a cocktail party. So there we are, DIME, diplomacy, (laughs) intelligence or information, military or economic. And so if you think about those four instruments, they can be used to advance interests. And so when we think of diplomacy, What image pops into your mind? I mean, diplomacy, honestly, I mostly go to a kind of, maybe not 007, but certainly some six foot five, well-trained kind of... White guy. Yeah, typically, (laughs) right? Cropped hair with a martini, perhaps. Um, Very smooth, very removed, and very self-assured. Yes. And at some cocktail party with a number of other diplomats from other countries, trying to advance U.S. national interests through that instrument of power that we call diplomacy. This dime idea, diplomacy, intelligence or information, military and economic, has sort of morphed over the years into another acronym that's useful to throw around at your own cocktail parties, perhaps with your martini in your tuxedo. (laughs) Yeah. Or other equivalent, yes. And that's called midfield. And I think midfield acknowledges that there are many more instruments of power that are at play. So it changes the order a little bit. Military, informational, diplomacy, 
financial, intelligence, economic, legal, and development. Wow. And so what you see here is this broader range of instruments of power that any nation can use to advance its interests in the world. I think two things to me are worth marking here. Midfield, I don't know if it's accidental. I'm sure somebody was just trying to create an acronym that people could remember. But military being the first one. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge that I have always had in terms of how the U.S. advances its interests in the world is it tends to rely on that military instrument a lot. And so you see all of the challenges that the world faces. How often do we use the military to solve that problem? To balance that out, the idea that both diplomacy and development are lifted up with this new acronym demonstrates that diplomacy still has a historical, traditional, and central role in advancing our interests. Mm -hmm. But the role of development, particularly with the tensions between the global north and global south in terms of economic development, can do a lot to advance our interests. And we're not the only nation relying on these instruments, by the way. We could think of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a giant development aid package with many countries throughout the world. Is it incentivizing those countries to work with us and work in our best behalf, right? To be friendly neighbors. One would hope that that is true. But I think both the U.S. and China use this development aid in ways that are advancing their own interests. There's nothing wrong with building a road in an area that doesn't have roads in order to enhance the capacity for infrastructure. But at what point does that serve the giving nation's interests rather than the receiving nation's interest? That's what I would question. Can I ask, how much is this advanced from, I mean, in the colonial period where the English, for instance, would in Namibia put down, well, that was the Germans actually, put down lines of train track that would only run along the coast and then directly in the interior. But there was no webbing because the interior, in terms of having any kind of communication with itself for the general population, didn't matter. What mattered was the extraction. Are we still kind of, when you think of the midfield model, does it come down to a kind of extraction diplomacy? I think you've hit the nail on the head. Nice work. You Mm. can specialize in this field. I'm in. Okay. Nice work. Um, But it it is about sustaining our core capacities, potentially at the expense of the core capacities of our neighbors. Okay. I'd love to share a George Kennan quote with you. He's the father of containment. And so at the height of the Cold War in the United States, he was shaping our U.S. foreign policy. And in 1948, He offered us this perspective on the U.S. We have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. In this situation, we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our security. Without positive detriment to our security. National security. That's right. Totally different from what you mentioned earlier about a deeper moral responsibility that might even transcend our sovereignty. And I think the challenge in this period of time, he's he's talking specifically about Latin America and the challenges that communism was presenting to us Mm -hmm. in our own hemisphere. And so we wanted to be able to create a situation in which we kept those who were down, down. Um, and lifted up those who shared our values in such a way that would advance 
democracy over communism, Mm -hmm. as an example. And so that can have a good moral feeling to it. Sure. Can't it? You know, because we're the good guys. Right. We're the heroes. We want to prevail. And it helps us, does it? Because the American archetype, what would you call that? Like of the, I don't know, the desperado or the kind of lone hero, the Superman, the one on the hill, the shining city on the hill. The shining city on the hill, I think, frames out in beautiful rhetoric the idea of American exceptionalism. We we considered ourselves to be very exceptional and very different, but in large part, my view is that we use that rhetoric to our advantage and we we coat a lot of these challenges in this type of rhetoric to make it palatable. Mm-hmm. I think that helps the listeners so much as you are describing these instruments of, of power and also that quote and the means by which this gets enacted in the world. And so you also mentioned earlier the kind of moral responsibility. And I think now, perhaps also with challenge points that the UN Charter wasn't thinking at the time it was written, like, for instance, uh, COVID-19 or other examples that we've talked about previously. How does this moral responsibility get enacted? And what are the kinds of challenges that you see? I think also given your real professional interest in migration. What does all that mean for both how we understand sovereignty in the future and what our moral responsibility should look like? I think what challenges me the most about the present period that we're in is we we have this idea of sovereignty as a central tenet, reflected starting with the Treaty of Westphalia, reflected in the UN Charter, a large part of our rhetoric today. But so many of the challenges that the world faces aren't state-centered. They are human-centered. And so transnational challenges like COVID-19, like global migration, these are things that don't respect borders. They don't even acknowledge borders. And the structures and the systems and the institutions that we have created address the more traditional threats that we've talked about already. And so National security is something that those three tenets, the idea of homeland security, economic prosperity, and and promotion of values, you might actually put them into conversation with another framework that I think is more useful today, and that is human security. The idea that we have a desire to have a freedom from fear, a freedom from want, and a freedom from indignity. And if our institutions and structures and values we're more oriented on this idea of freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom from indignity. How is it that we would advance as a globe, not only as a nation, this idea that we have a support for the idea of human flourishing? So let's take COVID as an example. COVID crossed borders. It didn't have a visa, no passport. What was up with that? And initially there was a phase of well, we, we locked down, we pointed a lot of fingers and blamed at each other. Mm-hmm. We talked a good game about vaccine diplomacy and bringing the world together to solve this giant challenge. But then we fell back into our national security foxholes and mm-hmm. developed our own vaccines and didn't do a great deal to share them with other mm-hmm. people. And so how is it that we we see this tension between national security and human security at play in simply how the vaccine and the general response to COVID-19 was enacted throughout the world. You asked about global migration. This is another great example. You have a right to leave your country. That is a human right. 
you don't have a right to enter another country. And so there's been this growth and development in acknowledging the moral core of if someone is fleeing violence or conflict, they have a right to flee that violence and conflict. Mm -hmm. And states should be supportive in a moral sense of that need. What comes to mind is Jews fleeing in World War II, fleeing Germany. Mm -hmm. So many of them were suffering so greatly under Hitler's regime, and a number of them left, and very few states provided them sanctuary. And we reflect on that now, and we think, how in the world could that have happened? But at the time, there was not necessarily great agreement around how that process would work. The result was the creation of the Refugee Convention that now governs how states will agree to accept other folks who are experiencing persecution. And so this idea is centered on these these five sort of categories by which you can become a refugee. Um, And those are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and membership in a particular social group. So sovereign nations who have signed this convention, which it's now hard international law, go through a process of considering refugees and providing them sanctuary through one of these means, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Mm. So this moral responsibility translates into this process by which we would accept or not particular people. The challenge being that you notice that there are some aspects of that definition that are somewhat absent. Yeah. Race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group. Is there anything that sort of leaps out to you as missing? Yeah, how about gender? Gender. Absolutely missing. The challenge that is presented by climate change. Yeah. uh, Missing. There's a whole set of critics that say if you, you open up Pandora's box by trying to readjust that definition. But there's so many others that are saying that the challenges that that forced displacement and global migration present us in these situations that extend far beyond these five reasons warrant our re-examination of this because it is the moral thing to do. I mean, we see this as you're speaking to this. I, in my mind, in the Rio Grande River at the border between Texas and Mexico, uh, I have the image of those who were crossing, whose bodies were washed down that river or and around Turkey, where there was a, a young boy and his father who were both drowned. And people will remember that image in the media. I mean, this isn't, or oh, we could talk about those who are fleeing to um, the coast of Italy today. I mean, this isn't in the remote future. No, and I, I think... Those images are are searing. It's hard not to see that when you're thinking about these things. What it brings up for me is the challenge of this, you know, moral desire to be welcoming to people who are fleeing violence and the rules and laws and regulations that we and other states enact that effectively externalize our borders. And so the images of Haitians being chased by Border Patrol on horseback, the examples that, that you've brought up situations in Europe, Ukrainian refugees fleeing. There's all these situations where people, if you were that person, right? Mm -hmm. If you were that person being chased or that person in the river or that person fleeing the war, would you not want someone to help you? Yeah. And would you, would you not feel called to do the same if you were 
seeing that situation, there's a moral responsibility that we all have to act. I think that's why I landed in this particular academic space. What about domestic violence? This also isn't accounted for. We've talked about this before. Yeah. What's the moral response internationally going to be in those cases where predominantly women are in a compromised life and death situation and are fleeing violence? Yeah. How can we say domestic violence is any any more or less challenging than gang violence or mm. or actual conflict, be it civil war or any other type of war? It is a, a situation that limits human potential, that that limits human flourishing, that is cause for some sort of moral action. Yet the frameworks that we developed in the wake of World War II that persist today are ones that don't recognize this. During the Trump administration in particular, the attorney general took steps to eliminate gang violence and domestic violence as being cases by which someone could successfully lodge and receive asylum in the United States. Those decisions have since been overturned. But can you imagine being the woman who has experienced domestic violence and that woman would have fled. That woman would have fled to the United States as a sanctuary, as a refuge, perhaps joining loved ones, and been unable to be successful in that claim, and then been returned to the country that she came from, which violates the internationally recognized principle of non-refoulement, which says that we will not return people who fear for persecution to the countries from which they fear persecution. The freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom from indignity, how does that factor into someone who's feeling tremendous anxiety about violence at the hands of those around them? That's hard. I think what comes up for me is that is the idea of human security, the three tenets that you've just named, freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom from indignity, is all we want for ourselves. And so... It's perhaps aspirational or a bit idealistic to suggest that if we were to think about how we advance our interests in the world, to use that framework as the way in which we think about things, our policies and laws and rules and regulations in this country would look very, very different. It would be less likely for us to externalize our borders in the way that we have. Some say that our southern border is actually no longer the border between the United States and Mexico, it's between Mexico and Guatemala mm -hmm. because we've convinced Mexico to play a role in our externalization of borders. Australia has done the same thing in terms of its own externalization of borders. I think there's just a lot of challenges there that my great hope is that if we were to shift to a framework where we were thinking more about human security, we would be making very many different choices, not only in terms of domestic policy, but international policy. And I think this, two things come up for me that sort of relate to this. The first is the idea of the, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the, the loan authorization act that passes Congress every year without fail. $857 billion, with a B, for our military industrial complex. That was of almost no use during COVID a significant transnational challenge that, that doesn't honor borders. And that was a budget for one year. 
Right. Wow. And that's the 2021 budget. So, you know, it, it varies over the years. It depends a lot on who's in his sitting, the sitting presidency and who controls Congress. But if that entire complex was of no help to one of the greatest challenges that our generation has faced in the form of COVID-19, imagine if we had been oriented, reoriented in terms of human security, how would that look different? How would we use that money differently to advance our interests? Well, that's a question I was just about to ask you. What do you think about what our moral responsibility should be and how that should shape our common future? My answer is less practical, probably. I have friends that work in the military-industrial complex that would argue mightily with me about this idea of diverting $857 billion for other purposes. That's not really what I'm trying to say. But I also think that there is a, an absence of practicality in what I'm, I'm going to suggest, because advancing our moral interests is not always practically that simple, right? And just taking the monies in the National Defense Authorization Act and slapping them down on the, the idea of human security doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But I do think that there is a, a requirement or a need for us to consider what is it do we value individually and how does that translate to our values as a nation? And I think at, at our core, we talk a good game about human security and the importance of human flourishing. And I don't think our actions necessarily translate to that. So how can we as citizens, how can we as voters, how can we as human beings advance these ideas? And that practically can then create the type of change that we want to see. Each of us votes for people who create a situation in which an act is passed that takes $857 billion and advances it towards this idea of national defense. I just wonder if we were if we were to think about that problem differently, more in a human security-centered framework where the human being is centered rather than in a national security framework where the state is centered, how that would look different. I am talking with Professor Audrey Hudgens, Associate Clinical Professor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Seattle University and retired U.S. Army Strategic Intelligence Officer. And we're discussing national security, human security, and the values essential to our future. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.